0: Welcome to another Tuesday Hometime with Joan Bartlett. I'm here till six tonight, and then Done By Law takes over. But first, it's thanks to Anne McAllister and the Celtic Folk Show. Lots happening in the world. ALP making moves towards recognising the state of Palestine. I'll be speaking with Nasha Mashni, who's the Vice President of Australia Palestine Advocacy Network. And here in Australia, are we seeing the beginnings of a new women's movement? Activist Coral Winter believes so. And was there an attempted coup in Jordan? Who was behind it? And what will the consequences be? Talking with Dr. Tim Anderson. Brazil's multinational Vale is selling out of New Caledonia. What will that mean for the people of New Caledonia? And what is the process now with choosing the new president of New Caledonia? Nick McClellan has been writing about both these issues. But first, let's hear what Mr Kevin Healy has been up to this week.
1: A week, Jane, listener, when Big Supremo scuttled them more, Lash Sun, a.k.a. Scummo, explained there were three million reasons why the rate of the jab has not been so fab, that they can't go faster, is a national disaster. We're short of our lots, thanks to some bloody clots. (laughs) Just thought I'd throw in a bit of brilliant poetry there, listener. Three million reasons, but, he stressed the point, but not one of them has anything to do with the government or me. Uh, But but aren't you responsible? Certainly, and we are being responsible, very responsible, but we can't responsibly be blamed for three million reasons, unlike the state governments. So the state governments are responsible for the rate not being fab, but you're not responsible. Given the choice, them or us, uh, uh, yes. But the good news, he said, was that the New Zealand bubble was floating into the air along with passengers both ways. And of course, Scummer, you have a nostalgic interest at both ends, having been big supremo of both countries' tourist authorities at some stage in your illustrious career. Yes, yes, I was the tourism supremo before I became big supremo. And stuffed them both up, well, stuffed up, stuffed all three up. Where'd that come from? Where the bloody hell did that come from? Imagine the analysis, if it could be called analysis, in some managerial agency. He stuffed up their tourism authority. He stuffed up our tourism authority. He's clearly incompetent, uh, apart from talking crap. So where could we find a suitable place for him? A difficult one, Jack, but, but, well, a prime minister springs to mind. Oh, listener, as non-news punishes us with wall-to-wall ad infinitum coverage of the demise of a 99-year-old doll bludger, we can at least be thankful there's one less mouth for the British taxpayer to feed, even if it probably wasn't eating a hell of a lot lately. Well, we've covered that one. Question. When it's an economy, we are told, is growing at 4.5% and apparently going well simultaneously in a state of disaster? Answer when workers lazy avaricious workers want a pay rights Despite claims that the economy is recovering so well and faster than anyone would have thought, they tell us, caring employers have been forced to come out strongly against any wage rise in this year's minimum lowest of the low paid hearing. Indeed, caring employers have called for a wage freeze. After all, workers hit caring employers with a crippling one point something percent increase last year, although thankfully caring employers didn't have to pay the one point something until this February. No decision mid-year, but no actual money in the pockets of the lowest of low-paid until February, prompting our old mate the Troubler, Aussie Industry Profits Group's Inus, will cost the workers to gasp. It would be extremely unfair to require them to pay another increase on July one, and we know Inus is nothing if not all for fairness, but. Bit confusing though for we mere ignoramuses because after the government boasted a projected 4.5% growth and the economy would now roll along with our JobKeeper, it put in a submission to the Fair Work True Blue Aussie No Longer Work Choices Just Looks Like It panel saying the very opposite opposing an increase in the minimum wage when the economy is in a recession or a prolonged slowdown. Given the continuing uncertain global and domestic economic outlook, higher labour costs during this challenging period could present a major constraint to small business recovery and may dampen employment in the sector. There, that sums it up. All they care about is employment. Lazy, avaricious, ingrate lazy, avaricious workers having a job. And obviously from their submission and Innes' submission, one person's wage rises another person's job. Like one shareholder's huge dividend is another sh- Oh, no, 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 that's not a, not a good example. Now you complain about slow wages growth, in us. We, we put to Innes. So why aren't you supporting a wage rise for the lowest of low paid? Because the evil unions won't agree to caring business class relations sensible changes which would provide employment and higher wages. For instance, they even opposed our patriotic attempt to get rid of the better-off overall test. We can't have higher wages if we're prevented prevented from making workers worse off overall. That seems to be a a contradiction in us. Uh, Not from where I'm standing. One great caring employer, DeliverPoo, announced it would have to reduce its workforce if forced to pay them, pay gig workers little crippling benefits like minimal pay, sick leave, holiday pay. Are uh, Your workforce, we asked spokesperson Andy Ripoff, so they're your workforce, your workers. And uh, No, no, they are independent contractors who work for you, who, who offer to be contracted by us. Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, Anthony Albin said he would move to crack down on insecure work. <laughs> Is there self-interest here, listener? No, no, silly thought. I respectfully dis- I respectfully disagree, Andy Ripoff respectfully disagreed that the opportunities Deliveroo provides to writers are insecure or precarious. Are uh, not insecure or precarious, and uh, no more flexible. Well, caring employers are always telling us workers would be so much better off if caring business class relations laws were more flexible. So, well done, Liverpool. Oh, and by the by, huge, huge, filthy rich Goldman Sachs of wealth snapped up 135.4 mil, real figure, in DeliverPoo's shares of the London Stock Exchange last week, so there's no way poor old DeliverPoo could possibly provide wages and conditions for its workers, or, sorry, its workforce, contractors. The other end of the scale to show how dangerous those evil unions and the bloody ACTU shows it's as ignorant as we are. Well, I won't assume as ignorant as I am when it comes to the delicate flower that is the economy. If wages don't increase, it threatens the entire recovery, Secretary Sally McManus showed. She had no idea, unlike Innes and the sundry chambers of profits and the government. Money in the hands of working people is what will create sustainable economic growth, not bigger profits for big business. Any wonder poor Innes and Scummo and Andy Ripoff are so frustrated. There's optimism, and there's optimism, and then there's this. One of Troubler was his most filthy rich of the filthy rich aged care and health entrepreneurs, bloke called Moron, is catering for his co-filthy rich with an opulent new development, an aged care facility, residences with French parquetry floors, tiles from Spain, Victorian marble fireplaces, but all mod cons and modern technology, and pensioners queuing up at the bank waiting for it to open on pension day can get into this luxury for a mere four million oh plus naturally a two thousand a month service fee including a nurse and oh and a laundry not sure why that's extra but here's the optimism bit the four mil gets you a 99 year lease in an aged care facility as optimism goes that has to be right up there while on the filthy rich the death of Carla Patty shows yet again that if you want the public purse to pick up the over the top costs of your funeral become very very filthy rich Although in fairness to Carla, she declared her role in life was to make women feel comfortable and relaxed. And the way women feel comfortable and relaxed is by wearing my label. They feel so free. Uh, your label, which isn't so free. And uh, That's the good bit. It makes me feel comfortable and relaxed. Of course, the poor can get a state funeral. It's called a pauper's grave. But if some people are feeling just a little pessimistic, unlike those optimists grabbing those 99-year leases on aged care accommodation, bit pessimistic about climate change if there is such a thing, it's not all bad news. Smart Investor column in the troubler Capitalist Review listed climate change as a great opportunity for investors. Benefit from climate change opportunities, it advises. It mentioned, for instance, one fund which invests in about 100 global companies, quote, that make at least half of their revenue from products and services that reduce or avoid carbon emissions. Very good. But then... It doesn't say where they get the other half of the revenue from, but we can assume that's what they mean by carbon offsets, carbon neutral. Very useful, these carbon offsets. They allow the big polluters to keep big polluting to their heart's content by planting a few trees in some other country, whereas we simple souls might've thought naively the best way to stop polluting would be simply to stop polluting. So isn't it encouraging to see that those who know all about how the delicate flower works, that is the economy, are able to make a little killing out of climate change if there is, rather than just leave the planet to be killed by climate change if there is. Notice former big Supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull was appointed and then unappointed to head a New South Wales body on clean energy because he opposed mining, exporting and burning coal. For balance, the federal government has appointed a former Supremo of fossil origin energy and former head of the True Blue Aussie Business Profits Council, therefore, a very important man, Grant King Cole, to head and, quote, overhaul the Climate Change Authority. Grant assuaging our concerns with his first piece of wisdom, I believe the move to reduce emissions should not come at the expense of jobs or economic growth, which should work wonders for the climate change bit, if there is. Finally, in the interesting timing department, after the Sex Discrimination Commissioner's respected work report had been gathering dust for a year or so, the government announced it will adopt all recommendations, many, many it said in principle. We support that in principle, it will say. And what action will you take? We will support that in principle. are ah, such principles. Hope no one thinks gathering dust for a year is some sort of reflection on the government. Good afternoon.
0: That was Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was, and he'll do it all again next week. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3 Community Radio, 855 AM.
2: More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel, at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm.
0: Of the 193 member states of the United Nations, 138, that's 71.5%, have recognised the state of Palestine as of the 31st of July 2019. Unfortunately, Australia is one of the 55 who have not recognised the state of Palestine, but this could change in the not too distant future if an ALP government is elected federally. At the recent ALP conference, Senator Penny Wong successfully moved the amendment to the ALP platform on Palestine, which urged the two-state solution, but also called for the National Labor Government to recognise Palestine as a state. But it's been a hard road to follow for previous ALP decisions, and in recent years, particularly that of Prime Minister Julia Gillard. I spoke at the weekend with Nasser Mashni, the Vice President of Australia Palestine Advocacy Network. Now, sir, as I said in that introduction, it's not so long ago that the ALP under Gillard would not have entertained a vote to recognise the state of Palestine. I know the National Conference of twenty eighteen put out its strongest support for recognising Palestine as a state, but it was not incorporated into the national programme. Can you talk about the activities here in Australia? First, to reach that 2018 position and now the 2021, which reaffirms the decision.
3: Let's just make it clear for our listeners exactly the stage we're at now. In the 2018 ALP National Conference, and a national conference, what that does is inform policy for the Labor Party. At the 2018 National Conference, a motion was passed unanimously calling on the next Labour government to recognise the state of Palestine. Not cabinet decision, but certainly was a significant move forward. And what was most significant for supporters of the recognition of Palestine was the fact that it passed unanimously. In the past weeks, we've seen a um, former Labour minister and agitator, if you will, for the, for the state of Israel, Michael Danby, and, and a couple of other right-wing ideologues, agitate for the next Labor government to condition its recognition of the state of Palestine on a number of different predetermined conditions, many of which the State of Israel would fail to, to uh, abide by. And what's most disturbing from the point of view of conditioning that recognition is that the Labor Party itself recognized the State of Israel way before any of those conditions were met in 1948. So from the point of view of writing a wrong we recognised Israel, Australians recognised Israel, the right thing to do is recognise Palestine, uh, to join 139 countries now I think, um, around the world and recognise the state of Palestine on the Green Line.
0: How significant were the conditions that Danby was talking about?
3: Well the conditions were things that were, were like, that we've already done, that Palestinians must recognise the state of Israel, and we've done that. Uh, a, a new notion, obviously, uh, well, I say it's new, it's probably a decade old now, is the notion that uh, Palestinians have to recognise Israel as a Jewish state, not understanding, delegitimizing the rights of t- over 20% of the citizens of the State of Israel who are Palestinians, denying the rights of the 4 to 5 million refugees who were ethnically cleansed uh, when the State of Israel was created. So, and there was some other stuff around you know, demilitarised state and, you know, control of borders, etc. I mean, really, the, the sort of stuff that says that you're not really a state.
0: How much support does Danby have in the ALP?
3: Well, I'm very, very heartened that when the motion was put up uh, last month, at the end of March, that, in fact, it passed unanimously and there was no dissent, uh, which speaks clearly to the fact that that fringe right-wing Israel-first Labor Party mentality is, is very small within the Labor Party now, which is, which is exceedingly great. And we see this as a step uh, in the right direction from the Labor Party, recognising Palestine first, and then ultimately if um, we get to a point where the Australian populace starts understanding exactly what's going on there, that we can start talking about actions we might take if Israel doesn't allow the Palestinian state to emerge.
0: What about the ALP recognising the two-state solution? There are critics who say that's long overdue, that they should not be pushing that line anymore.
3: Look, the facts on the ground make it impossible, arguably, for a contiguous Palestinian state to emerge. Certainly, um, when we we might get a chance to talk about the uh, election that just occurred within the State of Israel, The reality is the ruling Likud party, Benjamin Netanyahu's party, it's a part of their manifesto, their charter, that says there'll be no Palestinian state west of the Jordan River. So that's Benjamin, he's Israel's longest serving prime minister. That's his party's platform. Uh, He again won the majority of seats in the most recent election. So when we're talking about two states in Australia, and the Prime Minister of the State of Israel is ruling a party whose platform mandates that there will be no Palestinian state, there's a really solid argument for what should we be talking about
0: next. But what was actually said at the ALP conference about the two-state solution and the ALP's decision on that?
3: So firstly, uh, the resolution reaffirmed a call on Labor when next in government to recognise the state of Palestine. And Penny Wong, who's the uh, foreign affairs spokeswoman, said that any lasting resolution to the Middle East conflict cannot be at the expense of either Palestinians or Israelis and that they support the rights of both people to live within secure borders. Look, it's it's the same sort of resolution that's existed across partisan lines for, for you know, since the, probably the mid-70s, early 80s.
0: I did read somewhere that if this comes into being and the Labor Party is elected, it will be about the only Western country to support the state of Palestine. Is that correct?
3: Well, well, certainly it would be perhaps the biggest friend of Israel to support a state of Palestine. There are some Nordic countries that have recognised the state of Palestine. And and they're Western, but certainly the bulk of the supporters of uh, and who have recognized a state of Palestine are former colonial states who have, you know, emerged from the boot of imperialism. And obviously their hearts and minds and souls are with the Palestinian peoples who are suffering modern day colonialism and uh, a settler colonialist ideology in Zionism. But certainly it would be a significant significant uh, blow to the the State of Israel. We sit with America and Canada as the most ardent of uh, supporters of the State of Israel.
0: Would you like to say more about the election of Netanyahu and where that's likely to go? Uh,
3: Yes, I, I I think it's important for our listeners to know, Jan, the Knesset is made up of 120 seats and you need to have 61 seats to be Prime Minister of the State of Israel. Now Benjamin Netanyahu and his Likud party, who the charter of which says that there should be no Palestinian state, there must be no Palestinian state west of the Jordan River, he's won just over 30 seats, so a quarter of the seats. But the next party is in the, in the low teens, so he's got he's overwhelmingly got the most seats. Uh, President of the State of Israel, uh, Reuven Rivlin, has given him I think a month or two months to form a government, a coalition government. Out of the 120 seats, though, what's particularly devastating and what Australians and and citizens of the world need to know is of 120 seats, 97 of those seats were won by what we would call right-wingers. And we say right-wingers because within the Knesset today, we have Israel's own version of the KKK, Ben Gavir, who ran a, a, a campaign that's trenchantly and ardently about jewish supremacism it's anti-arab they are disciples of rabbi meir kahan who formed the Kach party the Kach party was outlawed in the early 90s for being so extreme in its racism and fascism they inspired uh, an uh, ardent supporter of uh, rabbi meir kahan baruch goldstein committed the hebron massacre killing 29 innocent palestinians as they lay uh, in prayer. These are the sorts of people that are now inhabiting the Knesset. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was able to broker a deal between these sorts of really, I mean, these people are extreme compared to Benjamin Netanyahu, who is extremist uh, if you're a Palestinian. They're on the right of him. But this is a guy who now has about six seats. Now, what we need to think about is six seats out of 120 isn't much. But the Labor Party the Labour Party of the State of Israel, who f- were the f- founders of the State of Israel, and for much of the 72 years and now 73 years of Israel's existence have ruled Israel. Labour Party is the party of settlements. This Labour Party, they also won six seats. Now, they won six seats and they were used to talk about two states, In fact, the Labor Party and Moretz, which are deemed to be left-wing, not one of these two parties ran anything about ending the occupation. Not one of these two parties spoke anything about Palestine. They just ran on an agenda of, we're not Benjamin Netanyahu. And between them, they won 10% of the the seats in the Knesset. So one of the things that we've got to understand outside of... um, the state of israel is just how far right that country has gone and we've really got to hold it to account
0: tell me why it has gone so far to the right what's been happening in the region
3: i don't know that it's specific to the region jan i think if you have a look at the world that the concept of a populist insular leader is pretty real i mean it's victor orban in uh, victor orban in hungary you know, who who ran a very anti-Semitic campaign saying they, you know, are coming to get us. You know, uh, they had pictures of George Soros, who's a Hungarian Jewish guy, and they had pictures of him on buses, you know, with, you know, crosses through him and saying, you know, don't let the Jews win. And, and I'll paraphrase that a little bit, but really anti-Semitic stuff. And this guy, Viktor Orban, is then... Next minute, you know, in Jerusalem, being hand shaking hands with Benjamin Netanyahu, it's Bolsonaro in in Brazil, it's uh, Duarte in the Philippines, it's Trump in the United States, it's Scott Morrison here, them us, you know, that sort of really sickening politics. It's not unique to Israel, but certainly Benjamin Netanyahu has mastered that divide and conquer. He was able to split. In fact, the Arab joint list, Palestinians make up 20% of the state of Israel and have the right to vote. Many don't vote, and they don't vote because they don't want to afford Israel the legitimacy of participating in their democracy, but many do vote. And in fact, in the last election, Palestinians won 15 seats. They were the third largest political party in the Knesset, and uh, a former general and a butcher of Gaza, Benny Gantz, was the second most uh, seats. And the joint list, the Arab, the Palestinian list, offered Benny Gantz support to form government. He could be prime minister with their support. They would not be part of the cabinet. They didn't want him to ask any cabinet seats. They would guarantee supply for budgets, et cetera. And they offered him their 15 seats so that we could see the end of Benjamin Netanyahu who's indicted on corruption charges, we should remind our listeners. Benny Gantz said, no, I won't form a government with uh, Arabs. The sort of mentality we're dealing with.
0: What's the likelihood or not that Netanyahu won't be there in the near future?
3: I think anybody who's bet- who has been betting on Benjamin Netanyahu failing has lost a lot of money. I mean, many years from now, perhaps even now, there are PhDs in writing of the political mastery of this man. I mean, how he's managed to hold on to power for this long. Israel's had its fourth election in two years. Even though 97 of the 120 seats are right-wing fascist Zionists, Jewish supremacists, who believe in a Jewish nation in a land of multiple cultures and religions, but believed in the nation-state law that says, you know, only Jews get that first right of, uh, that highest status of citizenship. 97 of the 120 members of Knesset are in that space. He can't get 61 of them to support him. Now, that says something about how much he's reviled by, you know, arguably at least 38 of them. (laughs) So, but he's still there, you know. He's Israel's longest-serving prime minister.
0: Will Gantz take over if he goes, or the other far-right Well, will Benny Gantz.
3: On? Well, Benny Gantz came second last time, and came second and only marginally second. Uh, and with the support of the Joint List, which had 15 seats last time, he would be prime minister now, serving out a four-year term. Instead, he chose not to take that support. And in this most recent election his constituency abandoned him. He went from 30 seats to five. They've completely left him because he he, uh, he promised that he would not uh, support Benjamin Netanyahu and in the end agreed to do a deal with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu where they would serve two years each as Prime Minister. And as the time was ending for Benjamin Netanyahu's term, well, he did what Benjamin Netanyahu does, politics like no one else, uh, next thing you know, you've got an election and Benny Gantz is uh, almost thrown out of the Knesset.
0: Just thinking, though, if the ICC investigation goes ahead, Gantz could be one of those named.
3: Oh, there's no question that Benny Gantz is one of the names of, of uh, on the ICC's list. The ICC investigation is going ahead. There are no indications that it's stopped. Unfortunately, the ICC is a, uh, a, a slow-moving bureaucracy, and it's not moving at the sort of speed that we'd like it to move, so that the Palestinians that have suffered so greatly can see justice, but absolutely, Benny against Benjamin Netanyahu, all of those war criminals will be, hopefully, uh, charged and one day held to account.
0: Biden has announced that it, the US would restore aid to the Palestinians. Which aid is that?
3: Uh, so Some reports have come out that the Biden administration is restoring funding to UNRWA, the United Nations Relief Workers Agency, which is a specific body that was set up by the United Nations to take care of Palestinian refugees. And Zionists around the world have worked feverishly to see UNRWA fail. They've uh, smeared it, they've cast dispersions against its work. The reality is that the United Nations created the State of Israel illegally in my mind, and in that same moment, in accepting the state of Israel and allowing for it to be created, it was the condition of Israel joining the United Nations, the world representative body. One of the conditions of entry into the UN was that it would fully implement UN Resolution 194. And United Nations Resolution 194 specifically says the Palestinian refugees must be immediately allowed to return to their homes and or given compensation. That was 1948. 73 years later, those Palestinians languish in refugee camps within the West Bank, in Lebanon, not many left in Syria post the the troubles that are there. They're in Jordan, they're in Egypt, parts of Iraq, and scattered throughout the rest of the world. I'm one of those people. Now, Israelis and Zionists and their supporters claim that the refugees that UN 194 refers to is those people that were ethnically cleansed, as we say, or from their point of view uh, chose to leave. Well, if somebody's pointing a gun at you and you want to choose your life, you're not choosing to leave, you are being thrown out of your home, you're being ethnically cleansed. They're saying that the descendants of those refugees don't have that same right. Yet, under the Zionist narrative, Jews that were expelled during the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, wherever they might be throughout the world, however long their detachment might have been, can at any time perform alia, return, and be given immediate citizenship. The The fact that my father was ethnically cleansed in 1948, ended up in Australia in the early 50s. I was born here. My son was born here. We weren't allowed to go back. We're not allowed to go back. I wasn't allowed to bury my father, my late father, next to his parents in our our cemetery within our village because he was celebrated God on the wrong day. Purely for the fact that he celebrates God on a Friday and not a Saturday, he wasn't allowed to be buried next to his ancestors. That, For that reason, UNRWA should be defunded. The absurdity of it. Now, Biden has reinstated funding. It's all the funding. He has not made up for the money that Trump didn't pay. On top of what he has given some money back and has restored some diplomatic channels with the PLO and the PA. What he has also not undone is the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. What he's also not done is uh, renounce the Golan Heights as being part of uh, Israel. So there's still some Trump stuff that's in there that they haven't undone. So sadly the regression that we had under Trump still exists.
0: Was Australia one of those countries that followed Trump in stopping aid to Palestine?
3: We hadn't until recently, and we don't really know what's going on there, but Australia, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, has funded a a program called AMENCA uh, within the West Bank and Gaza, um, and they've been very specific about you know, building capacity, training women, micro-businesses, some really, really good initiatives. Australia, we've done some really great work. Well, the Amenta program is being defunded this year. Disturbingly, disturbingly, we've found out that whilst, A, that the Amenka program is being defunded, and B, that there's not even an end of program evaluation is not occurring. So... That really speaks to some sort of, I mean, I think a little bit of a scary, I mean, really, really, if if we've spent, I think, upwards of $13 million in Palestine trying to increase capacity and build micro-businesses and what have you, that at the end of that program, we're not doing an end-of-program evaluation, so we don't know how our money was spent. We don't know how well it worked. I mean, that really speaks to some sort of, look, uh, malfeasance, That really, it, it, it's not right. Fine if you want to end the program. I don't agree with you ending the program. But the least we can do is make sure that we can report to taxpayers how our money was spent and the efficacy and output of how that money was spent. And stopping that program and not committing or not advising us as to what, if any, funding is going to happen after the end of this program puts us out of lockstep with America. And that, that's a little bit disturbing.
0: You spoke before about the one resolution that the Israelis had not adhered to. There's been many, many more. What can be done while you have certain powers controlling the Security Council in the UN who support Israel and make sure that these resolutions are not carried through
3: look at, you know America is one of the great exporters of democracy and they speak so um, highly of their of their own democracy yet it saw an openly misogynistic racist homophobe an anti-semite elected to its highest office they speak so highly of democracy and the the need for the people's voice to be heard. Yet, within the United Nations, they hold a veto, which says, we don't care what the voices of the people are, at any time we can say yes or no. And the reality is that the Israel First, the Zionist lobby, the evangelical Christian Zionist lobby, has held sway over much of American foreign policy, to the detriment i would say of, of, of the united states with respect to the question of palestine israel i mean if it was up to me we'd reform the united nations and every country would be given given a single vote there'd be no powers of veto uh, countries that didn't abide by un resolutions there would be you know there'd be a, a series of things that could happen you know starting off with arguably a slap on the wrist through to sanctions and God forbid, but ultimately some sort of military intervention. Uh, The fact is, you know, without UN resolutions, we went into and are still in Afghanistan. We went into and we're still in Iraq, even though the Iraqi parliament has asked all foreign forces to leave. Australia is still there, as is the United States. Israel uh, currently, there are in in excess of 60-plus UN resolutions that Israel has failed to abide by. I mean, we never found weapons of mass destruction, but we took Iraq back to Babylon.
0: No way around those vetoes, are there?
3: There's no way around those vetoes, no. And so we might get an abstention from Russia or China, occasionally France and Britain. The reality is the United States is a firm no. There was one minor, uh, Jan, uh, a deviation from the no, and it was in... Obama's last days as president when they abstained on the illegality of uh, settlement building in the West Bank. One abstention in how many years?
0: Well, we started off on a positive note and we're ending up on a not-so-positive note.
3: If if we can look strategically and at the long-term, Jan, you know, I'm in my 51st year now and I attended my first rally in my mother's tummy and it was an anti-Vietnam protest. And as a kid growing up in the Burbs, I'd say Palestine and people would say Pakistan. And people were still living in this dream that Israel was a modern socialist state and the kibbutz was there and the narrative of Exodus, Paul Newman and Exodus. And, you know, this, uh, the, the desert was made to bloom. That mythology has been broken now increasingly, increasingly as Israel becomes more and more fascist, it has become harder and harder to be its friend. And this is exactly mirroring what happened to South Africa. It's not easy to be Israel's friend today. We can talk about being the IT startup and all this sort of stuff, but you can't keep 2 million people in an open-air concentration camp in Gaza. Calculate the daily calorific content of the humans in there, and only allow that much food in, deny them rights of entry and exit, control birth and death registry. Of 50% of the people in historic Palestine don't celebrate God on Saturday. They're not Jewish. Most of those 50% of the population that that don't celebrate God on Saturday, most of those people don't get to vote. In excess of 40% of the population that Israel controls, the state of Israel controls, don't get to vote, yet the entity that's in control of all of historic Palestine controls every minute of their life. Access to water, entry and exit permits, birth and death registry, airspace, taxation, the whole kit and caboodle. If you're a Palestinian in a town in the West Bank, you lick a stamp, that has an Israeli Prime Minister on news, the Israeli shekel. You need an Israeli-issued document to travel. I mean, it's just sickening the level of control and apartheid that exists uh, for Palestinians. That said, we know how bad it is, and it's getting out there. And it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shows like yours, Jan, you've been doing the power work for many, many years people are starting to realise they were sold a lie. They were sold a lie. They were sold a lie on the fact that the indigenous people of what we call Australia, that they were backward, they were uncivilised, that they were nomads, that they had no cultural civilization. We now know that this is the oldest living civilization. They lived in harmony with the country. They didn't deal with the floods we deal with. They didn't deal with the fires we deal with. They didn't deal with any of the climate change we deal with because they lived in harmony with it. The lie of white settlement, of white supremacy in Australia has been exposed, and increasingly our kids are learning about how powerful that Indigenous culture was, as to what is the world learning about the just rights of the Palestinian people as Indigenous peoples to that land. Our struggle won't end soon, but we'll never give up.
0: Thank you, Nessa.
3: Lovely, Jan. Thank you so much for your time. I've
0: been speaking with Nessa Meshni who's the Vice President of Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network.
4: When you compare an old-growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a
0: disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests,
5: subscribe now
2: go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. the
0: national women's March for justice rallies around Australia on the 15th of March, brought men and women onto the streets, marching against misogyny, and in particular, the woeful behaviour of the Federal Government in response to sexual abuse allegations, ongoing discrimination and lack of transparency. And it was not just here in Australia. Activist Cora Winter believes we are seeing the beginnings of a new women's movement. I guess it's
5: just the beginnings of a new women's movement. You know, there was a huge upsurge of anger against the misogyny, you know, the rape culture and sexism that just brought out all those skeletons out of the cupboard. And it happened, the uh, outrage was all over the country, uh, even in the big cities and small towns, even like Geelong had 4,000, which is very impressive. I mean, it's just the beginnings of a movement against the... Sexual assault that's continual and that's happened all over the over the last 30, 40 years. You know, um, after the second wave of women's liberation in the 70s. So we've we've won
0: quite a few gains, but
5: this is still a massive ongoing problem.
0: It's patriarchy, isn't it? And capitalism. Okay, put the two together. Capitalism, because while women are
5: dependent, have economic dependence on men. Because their their wages are so low, we've got um, incredible casualisation of the workforce, especially women, it applies to women. All those industries where women um, work, that are feminized, you have low wages. And while that situation continues, there's no way we're gonna be free of this rape culture. Women aren't aren't respected, you know, and and until we have equality in the workplace and we have free childcare, access to permanent, Um, equally paid jobs, this will continue. The sexual assault and sexual harassment will continue. I I would maintain that any woman who's been in the workforce at all, for any length of time or a short or long time, the vast majority of women have suffered some form of sexual harassment or, or sexual assault in the workplace.
0: Well, look back on some socialist countries or who say they are socialist.
5: Well, there was a massive education campaign in uh, Cuba that men had to do a fair share of the workforce, uh, of the the housework and childcare. I I guess we have to realise this is a massive campaign to change a society's attitude to women because I believe that the oppression of women has been there for the last 5,000 years for a whole different range of causes and how it began. Um, And in Venezuela, they had a big fight to get paid wages for women who worked at home, who looked after children, looked after the elderly, and did housework. They were fighting for um, a wage to be paid for women who did that. And they were successful under Chavez. Now, that's the way it sort of began. I think we have to continue and campaigning for this and, and, and linking the sexual oppression with um, capitalism because a capitalist economy, they need to divide the workforce. They need a workforce that can they can call on when they need to and, and then dismiss when they don't want them. And that's always women who pick up that problem all the time. So capitalism forces women to stay in abusive relationships because of the economic dependency. And until we have access to Cheap housing and and childcare and equal wages, I think this will continue. There's no way out of it.
0: And childcare is the big one, isn't it? Because the women who seem to succeed or a large number of them to get good jobs, climb the ladder, they don't have children or they've got someone at home or a relative who's, who's minding their children for them. Other women have to, well, they can't go to work, many of them, because they no. can't afford childcare.
5: Yeah, the childcare fees are just incredible. They're $100 a day now for one child to be in childcare. With that report that came out against um, the care of the elderly, it's clear that both um, the nursing homes and also childcare centres are making a fortune out of the subsidies. Government paid private enterprises to run the childcare centres. They're making millions out of it, hand over fist, so that by the fees they pay and the handouts they get from the government to do it. So that's got to be taken back into, that's got to be nationalised and have a national system for, for young children, for places for them to go to, childcare centres that are free, and also to make sure that the childcare workers, who are largely women, are paid a proper wage to do that work, which is so important and so necessary.
0: And to break down that wall that seems to be of this is women's work and men don't want to work in that area. But then you think of maybe back in the 70s, 80s with, in the banking industry, the men were the tellers and women weren't allowed to be tellers because that wasn't women's work. But once the women were allowed to be tellers, the job was devalued because it's no longer a male Job, and I'm sure that happens in other industries as well.
5: Yeah, that's right. As soon as the um, industry becomes feminised, like in um, primary schools or yeah, childcare centres, or um, in also those uh, in sort of answering those those tele centres where you're answering calls, and it becomes women's work, then yeah, the wages go down, and they can just say, well, I think. But I think the worst thing that's happened over the last probably 10 years, is the casualization of the workforce, which applies to both men and women, that you've just got no permanent jobs. You get maybe you get a six-month contract, and after three months you're thinking about, well, where's the next job coming to? And so you have to start worrying about applying for jo- for uh, making applications to get more work. And also, you know, the, whole, the way the casualization of the workforce in the hospitality industry, well, then if you don't come across to a boss you won't get hours, you know, you, you get um, zero, con- zero hours or, or you'll just never be rung up for more work. So I'm sure that's another pressure on women these days with casualization and, and just a few hours work a week. If you don't do what the boss wants you to do, which may mean all sorts of sexual favors, you don't know, then um, you won't get work. So it's more and more pressure on women and I think it's getting, you know, more and more abusive.
0: And the insecurity that goes with
5: that. Absolute insecurity and worry about where the next job's going to come from. Yeah, it's such a a, a horrendous problem. And on top of that, the housing problem. You know, if you haven't got access to, you know, the the Liberal government has cut down all the rape crisis centres and the refuges for women, so there's nowhere to go if you are abused. Where do you go? You can't um complain because you'll lose a roof over your head, you and your children. And um so it's just been, it's sort of been just continued the, the whole oppression against women and their right to sort of a full and happy life. It, it just hasn't let up because of the economic situation now and because of the way things have been casualized, part-time work, insecure work. And the lack of public housing is another huge issue. We've all heard about the number of women, older women, trying to end their working life, and they've got no housing, so they've just got to keep working into their 70s. It is just horrendous. There's a massive... The growing number of homeless women and elderly women who um, haven't got a a permanent home over their their head. It is is absolutely appalling.
0: And you just think how much better for the economy for the government for everyone if people had a decent job had a decent home had childcare, it wouldn't cost that much because they gain with productivity whatever they also say they call it because people have that security of life
5: yeah but they can't do it because they need a divided workforce and they need a workforce in which they can pay them lower and lower wages You know, we haven't had a wage increase in the last 10 years, generally across the workforce. That's the way they want to keep it. And on top of that, you know, they're relying on travellers and um, backpackers to come here in the farming industry, so they don't have to pay proper wages there at all. So, I mean, it's just sort of getting in a really, really terrible situation. I mean, what has to happen now? It's sort of just the beginning of this a new women's movement, I think, based on all the violence and misogyny that we face every day. But I think now the next challenge is really to organise. from the grassroots and organise a national sort of women's movement. Um, We have to go back to organising the grassroots and getting, you know, ordinary women involved, perhaps a national summit that might incorporate all the women who face many of these problems, you know, all the groups that have, have had rape crisis centres, you know, the uh, legal groups that are fighting the rights for victims of sexual assault, the LGBTI um, groups that have fought for, you know, a life free of violence. I think that's what we have to start doing again in order to move this movement forward. I mean, it's just happened because of all the the last events that everybody knows about in the last two months that have occurred and, and, you know, it's been highlighted, the whole sexual assault and and the pressure to stay silent on this issue. The next step is, yeah, we have to go back to uh, grassroots organising and to perhaps organise a national summit where women's voices can be heard and also to get back on the streets.
0: We don't have to reinvent the wheel, do we? No. We've been there in the 70s. It was really good, I thought, the
5: demonstrators... You know, the people who came to the rallies, women's rallies, um, women for justice, referred a lot of, a lot of, many of the posters referred to the women of the 70s who had fought for a lot of these issues, and are still, were still there on that Monday, the 15th of March, fighting for the same things. It was really heartening to sort of see some of that recognition that what well, women had fought for and won a few things that it's all been chopped back now. I'd just like to mention that, you know, the federal government and, and SCOMO, I mean, they're so hypocritical about these issues. They don't really care. They don't want to do anything about it. Well, one thing I want to refer to is the case of Brittany Higgins because people may not realise that when that rape, alleged rape, took place in March in 2019, that was only a month and a half before the, the federal government and SCOMO went for that federal election. He would have lost that May 18th election if that information had come out. So there was so much pressure against poor Brittany not to say a word or to keep it all hidden. So him winning that election wasn't any goddamn miracle. It was all engineered. The basis of it was keeping Brittany quiet and her up.
0: But the good thing is that we've got a, a new generation of young women who are speaking loud.
5: Yeah, I think it's really, really encouraging. And they're so brave at what they've done and come out. It's so incredible what they have managed to do. Despite all the pressure and despite all the um, the rude and horrible and hate mail that they received, you know, they've worked their way through it. it. It is so wonderful to see that. I just saw some of the statistics in which I think they said there were two million adults in the year 2017 to 18 had experienced a sexual assault and one in three of those was from a spouse or a partner and half of those women didn't seek any advice but the amazing figure is that only one out of 17,000 assaults had a positive outcome where the perpetrator was jailed so these are the figures it's all been hidden it's all been swept under the carpet so it's really horrendous oh well the latest assault I think is the family court has been abolished it's just The family court has been merged into the Federal Circuit Court. That's going to have a terrible effect on women and children because 85% of the cases they deal with are concerned with domestic violence. We need a a family court that um, stands alone because it's a specialist court and you have to have people and barristers with experience and judges who know what the the situation is and how to deal with it. There's not been very much um, publicity about that. Gama was really serious about this. They would withdraw this this move. But of course they're not. It's just all talk and spin, just a lot of spin. So that's the, worst, the, next, the last thing that's happened. I think this, this loss of the family, they've been trying to do that for years because they've been pushed by the men's rights groups to do it and they have finally achieved it. And this is going to be a disaster for women and children. But more on a positive but it was a great movement on on march the 15th of all the women who came out thousands there was probably five to ten thousand in sydney i don't know about melbourne it was just lovely to see and the the signs were so funny and so (laughs) inventive and so imaginative i really enjoyed it but what we need now is is to continue this movement and to really come together and I should mention, you know, Aboriginal, Indigenous women must be kept in mind about this issue as well because they've faced 230 years of rape and, and murder all these years. Many, many Aboriginal women. So you must remember what has happened to them in this new struggle.
0: I've been speaking with activist Cora Winter.
5: There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855 AM. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au.
6: I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You now, the idealism that lies behind that, obviously, is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've mm-hmm. got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people, because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders, this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other.
5: You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR.
0: Australia's nearest neighbour in the Pacific, New Caledonia, holds an estimated 25% of global nickel resources, and the looming boom in electric vehicle manufacturers makes the mineral resources a crucial strategic asset. After months of political disputes, the Brazilian corporation Vale has sold its goro nickel smelter and other assets in New Caledonia's southern province. Researcher and journalist Nick McClann has written extensively about the history of the smelter and the nickel assets in Ireland's business. And I spoke with Nick at the weekend. Nick, before we look at the present and the possible future for this change of ownership, I'd like you to talk a little bit about Vale's record, not only in New Caledonia over the time it's been operating there, but we all remember the largest environmental disaster in Brazil just two years ago.
7: So, Vale is one of the largest mining and metallurgical companies in the world. It's based in Brazil although it has, uh, you know, shareholders uh, from around the world. And it's uh, a major conglomerate involved in metals processing and uh, mining operations. It's had a pretty poor record on environmental management, and that's true for its operations in New Caledonia as much as for those in Brazil and other locations. Uh, there's a, a real debate about the, the capacity of the mining industry to do environmentally sustainable work and, you know, to clean up mine sites afterwards and so on. And Vale is very low in international reputation for this. And that's been a problem with its its operations in New Caledonia. And one of the reasons why, since it uh, began operating a smelter in the south of uh, New Caledonia's main island about 2010, it's given up its operations there. And so since uh, December 2019, Vale has been trying to unload its assets in New Caledonia, to another buyer.
0: And how did the workers and the local people get on under Valet?
7: Not well, and it's been a real contrast. You know, this goes back a long time because France has really got a strategic interest in the nickel industry. We've talked on this program before that, you know, New Caledonia's got about a quarter of the world's reserves of nickel ore. It's a major strategic metal and can be used in alloys for everything for pots and pans to rocket ships and particularly for armaments and so on. It's an incredibly, you know, valuable metal. And most importantly, in coming years, it's uh, also a crucial part for making car batteries for electric vehicles. So as you have major automobile manufacturers from GM to Volkswagen to Tesla looking towards boosting their fleet of electric vehicles... Um, All of those uh, need uh, batteries that uh, rely on a a component of nickel and cobalt and so on. And with a quarter of the world's reserves, New Caledonia is strategically really important. And so for a long time, the French have tried to hang on to that and control it. And um, there's a company called Eremet, a French corporation, and a quarter of the shares in that are held by the French government. So they have a really important weight of of power over Eremet. And they've run a smelter through their local subsidiary, SLN, since uh, for more than 100 years. And for a long time, they kept the smelting of nickel ore rather than just the export of raw ore, the actual, you know, creating nickel metal, nickel mat, um, was in the hands of this one company, SLN. And one of the big struggles over the last 20 years, particularly from the Kanak independence movement, is to open up the nickel industry to other players outside of France and to get more control so that locals will benefit from this. And that's what's happened. In the north, there's a major nickel smelter at a place called Coniambo, which is controlled by the northern province and a mining company up there, together with a a transnational corporation called Glencore. And then Vale came in to build this smelter at a place called Goro. And the Goro smelters on the south uh, uh, east coast of the main island of New Caledonia and uh, they've been running, as I say, since about 2010. But the two are sharply different. You know, up in the northern province, where the independence movement holds sway, they've got 51% of the joint venture. So although the transnational corporation Glencore has brought technology and finance and so on to the, the operation at Coniambo, the northern province, through a series of holding companies, has majority control over the project. In contrast, in the south, where the anti-independent parties hold sway, they only had about a 5% investment in the Vale project. So Vale basically did what they want. And so its relations with the workers at the site and with the Kanak villages nearby were pretty poor um, over the last uh, 10 or 20 years uh, as they set the plant up and then began operations.
0: Have they handed over yet, Vale?
7: They're just in the process of doing so. You know, right through the the last decade, there were long battles and local customary chiefs, the indigenous Kanak uh, chiefs and uh, communities nearby, set up a group called Rebu Nu. And that struggled with the the, the management of Vale for years, saying, we want more jobs. Um, We want, uh, you know, opportunities for local subcontractors to get things like trucking, you know, and, and things related to the smelter. And particularly, we want better management of the um, environmental hazards. Unlike the project up in the north, the Goro smelter relies a lot on an acid leach technology. It's sort of hydrometallurgy that uses acid to break down the the nickel ore and get out the valuable metal. And so there's a massive tailings dam just near the Goro plant. And one of the things that's happened over over successive occasions has been the leak the leaching or leaking of uh, acidic effluent into the local river system. and that's been a disaster for Kanaks down there who rely on fishing, um, who uh, you know use the reef ecology and uh, the river ecology for livelihoods and so on. And so there's been major struggles between this uh, coordinating group, Rebu Nu and the Vale over environmental issues and basically Vale just gave up and uh, so they've been trying all through 2020 to sell their assets and have finally managed to, to do so just in the last week or so. To whom? To a company called Prony Resources. Um, this was part of the, the, the battle that uh, probably took over a year for the decision finally to come through. Uh, originally, the northern province through uh, its development arm, it's a a, a provincial-run development agency called Sofinor. They put in a bid together with a Korean company called Korean Zinc to buy Vale's assets. Uh, Korea Zinc is one of the world's largest processors of zinc and other strategic metals. Um, They've got a lot of experience in this hydro uh, metallurgy, so the acid leach technology that they're using. People thought it was a pretty good bid. Um, But... There's a lot of opposition to it from anti-independence politicians, including the provincial president, Sonia Bacchus, who didn't want the flnks control operations in the north also taking control of the smelter in the south. And that was part of the politics of this for the Kanak independence movement believes that New Caledonians should have strategic control over their resources as they move towards being an independent country. True independence is not simply getting your own flag but it's also having a level of control over the exploitation of natural resources. And so this was the battle. Vale refused the bid from Koreas Inc. And, uh, and and the Northern Development Arms, Sofidor. They tried to negotiate with an Australian company called New Century Resources, but that company didn't have the experience that it needed to run such a complex technology, didn't have the financial backing. And so the negotiations with New Century Resources went on for some months before they Collapsed about September last year. At that time, Sofinor reasserted their bid uh, to buy it. Um, um, but uh, a new company was created out of nothing, really, between uh, the local management of the Goro plant and a uh, commodity trader known as Trafigura. Um, and they wanted to take over Lock, strong, and Barrel, the whole operation. And at the end of last year, there were major disputes over this. The government of New Caledonia had to sign off on and things really changed in early February because the five pro-independence members of the government of New Caledonia, this multi-party government, resigned, brought down the government. And the Congress elected a new government in late February. And for the first time in decades, this has a, a pro-independence majority. So the, of the 11 members in the government, there are six of them, support independence. That's always been different. Previously, they've been in a minority four or five members of the 11-member government. Everyone realised this was a turning point. Although it's taken some time for the government to find its feet, they still haven't elected a new president there. But um, it was clear, clear that the new government wasn't going to let Valais uh, sell off the, these, you know, really valuable assets, not just the smelter but also um, exploration rights for, for major nickel reserves in the south uh, without a fight. And so Vale, the French government and local political leaders entered into some behind closed doors negotiations and finally uh, um early last month about the 4th of March struck that you know would give the assets of this Brazilian corporation to a locally based company but with majority ownership for New Caledonians rather than simply having a 5 or 10% stake in the operation and that's um the really the result of the roadblocks, of the protests, of the campaigning that's been going on by the independence movement for months and months and months throughout 2020.
0: What guarantees are they for the local people, the trade unions, and also environmental concerns?
7: Well, it's been really interesting that there's quite a complex structure that's been built up in the company, this new company called Prony Resources that has just been basically uh, handed over the, the, the resources The centre of it is a a holding company that will operate on behalf of New Caledonia's three provincial administrations. So that's from the Northern Province, the Southern Province and the Loyalty Islands. And two of those three are run by the independence movement. So that gives them a certain say. they'll hold 30% of the shares in this new holding company for the operations. Another 21% come for customary landowners and for workers, who work at the, at the project, and so there's a sort of local shareholding participation. So that's 51% will be for local provincial administrations, for customer leaders, and for the employees. Uh, so the majority control will be there. Only 19% goes to Trafigura, this trading company, and another 30% for the management and an international investment firm um, who will bring the foreign capital to the project so it still involves transnational corporations as most mining and smelting operations do around the pacific but there's 51% local control which is unprecedented in places like papua new guinea or vanuatu and so on and what's significant is that the deal says the the local control can't be watered down by doing things like just issuing more shares which would you know boost the the holding of, of foreign interests the other element will be a whole lot more work on the environmental management of the of the thing. So previously, as I mentioned, there's been a tailings dam where they've been holding the acidic um, effluent from the plant. Now they're going to have uh, dry storage of industrial waste at the site. They've established an independent monitoring committee which includes representatives of local environmental groups that have been campaigning for the last 15 years against Vale's pollution. So it's significant that there's uh, an opening for local authorities and local environmentalists to have a say, and that certainly wasn't the case when the Brazilian corporation Vale was running the show. All of this has been um, underwritten by uh, loans and loan guarantees from France. The other significant element in this whole deal is the involvement of Tesla, the U.S. Energy and Automotive Corporation, um, run by Elon Musk you know to support it Tesla will now join the project as a technical and commercial partner advising on environmental management of the, the waste and also um generating electricity for the plant by building a new renewable energy power plant previously there's been a lot of coal and diesel used for smelters in New Caledonia so this is new generation renewable energy as a driving force so although Tesla won't take shareholdings in the operation they're just a technical partner it's a really significant opening for the um uh the, the US corporation because Tesla is interested in nickel. You know, last July, last year in a statement, uh Elon Musk called on the global mining industry to produce more nickel, which is a key ingredient in the batteries that power Tesla's electric cars. And uh he said that the real limitation on, you know, the growth of Tesla's automotive production is battery cell production at an affordable price. So although it's early days and Tesla hasn't really moved into to assist in this project, I think in coming years that's going to be significant because already, um, uh, you know, Tesla's at the forefront of uh, making hybrid and electric vehicles. A whole lot of other auto manufacturers have announced that um, they want to move into this area. General Motors, um, earlier this year, giant U.S. car manufacturer announced that it was going to be shifting from petrol and diesel vehicles to electric vehicles over the next uh, 15 to 20 years. Volkswagen and Peugeot and a number of other European manufacturers are, are moving towards more electric vehicles. And certainly China has a massive program around not only buses, uh, cars but buses and other other transport. So this is the wave of the future. It's inevitable that people are going to be moving away from fossil fuel driven vehicles to uh, electric. The role of renewable energy in generating that is pretty crucial. So uh, all of these battles are going on around the world about transforming polluting extractive industries, but at the same time for indigenous people who want to control the process, who want to have um, some benefit from the revenues and shareholdings in these operations uh, and uh, certainly much better environmental management of, of uh resource extraction. That's very difficult in many cases by their very nature. The mining industry is incredibly polluting, but this is part of the battle, and it's really a precondition as New Caledonia moves towards uh, a third referendum on its political future, a referendum on self-determination over the next year.
0: The 3,000 employees, will they be re-employed on the same conditions, and will they trade union movement have a say in the running of things?
7: Yeah, the um, factory uh, employs workers from a couple of trade union confederations there, uh, uh, SOANC, which is uh, the largest uh, um, uh, trade union confederation, but also USTKE, which is the Kanak and Exploited Workers' uh, Trade Union Confederation. They have a a major uh, presence in the, the site. With 3,000 direct and indirect jobs, uh, it's really crucial. And as I mentioned, beyond the immediate employment, there's a whole range of smaller companies that have been set up over the last decade or so to provide subcontracting, particularly for transport, the, You know, transporting the ore from the mine site to the factory, transporting nickel mats to the docks, all those sorts of things. So there's uh, a lot of small local business that are, uh, are looking forward to this. And, yeah, as I mentioned, there's, you know, shareholding participation for uh, employees of the plant um, and really a guarantee to go on. You know, the plant's been on hold um, in operation since December last year. Uh, there's indeed been a lot of vandalism from protesting uh, uh, young people who've been involved in the roadblocks and the riots to to slow down the, the handover of these incredibly valuable uh, assets to uh, foreign interests. And um, so the plant's really been on care and maintenance for the last three or four months. The uh, you know workers are due to be going back later this month, um, and production starting again uh, pretty soon. And uh, so that's uh, you know been a really part of the the, the process that um, people wanted to keep the, the the Goro plant operating, wanted to keep control of the incredible nickel reserves in the Southern Province that are allied with this project. Rather than have them sort of taken over by uh, completely by foreign interests, and so the struggle over the last six to twelve months from Rebun Nu from uh, the customary leaders and from the independence movement the FLNKS, has certainly had some uh, impact, not exactly what they wanted uh, in terms of bringing in uh, the Korean operation that was proposed, but uh, a much improved uh, uh, deal to you know control this really strategic metal and to um, get some local benefits uh, as uh, the country moves towards a decision on its future political status.
0: Are there any opinions on the fact that it might be having all their eggs in one basket with New Caledonia with these huge amounts of nickel and not looking at other areas of manufacture or production?
7: Absolutely. I mean, I, I, it's been a, a long-standing debate, particularly up in the northern province, um, where the creation of the Connie Ambo plant uh, created a whole lot of economic employment opportunities, but drew away resources from other areas. Some years ago, before um, the COVID, I interviewed the pr- provincial president, Paul Naotin, and sort of asked both about the environmental impacts of the northern smelter, but also about uh, the diversities um, into other areas like tourism and particularly agriculture where local you know, farmers uh, uh, were seeking markets and so on. But he argued uh, at the time that, that um, the establishment of a major private sector operation like the Ambo smelter, still with uh, major shareholdings from uh, the northern province, would uh, generate revenues in the long term that would allow investment in other areas. And that's certainly been the debate about, you know, getting uh, action around uh, tourism and particularly around agriculture rather than simply being reliant on the resource curse of ripping metals out of the ground and shipping them offshore. And one of the things that the northern province Sofinoor development arm and and its mining company, SMSP, up there has done is to maintain control of the process by having 51% of their operations. So, for example, for a long time, New Caledonia used to just ship nickel ore overseas. They used to send it to Townsville, to the Yabulu plant in in Townsville, until Clive Palmer got his hands on it and shut it down. And so markets opened up elsewhere in Korea, in China and other places. And today the northern province has two projects, one in Guanyang in South Korea, together with the Korean corporation POSCO, and another smelter in China with the Chinese corporation Yinchuan. And in both cases, the northern province has 51% control. So they ship low-grade ore offshore, um, and in the long term will get the benefits from having their majority ownership of these two plants. And that's unprecedented in China particularly. And they use the high-grade ore to create metal and add value you know, with the smelter operation. But people are not unaware of the traps of this, um, that uh, the resource curse is described. You know, Timor's got lots of oil, but... You know, other sectors that provide employment uh, more so than mining, more so than smelting, are often underinvested, and that's certainly a debate, a battle within New Caledonia. And that's been particularly true under COVID, where you know the tourism industry has taken a big hit because of the lack of international travellers. The nickel smelting and nickel exporting has continued all through the last 18 months of, uh, of, of, uh, of shutdown, uh, but tourism and other sectors, agricultural imports, have taken a hit because um, the global economy has been in such a mess uh, in many ways.
0: In recent times, have the local Connect people been able to move into managerial positions?
7: That's coming slowly. I mean, one of the legacies of French colonialism is that up until the, the late 1990s, with the signing of the Matignon Accords in 1988 and then the Namir Accord in 1998, there were hardly any Connect professionals technical people, lawyers, doctors, and so on. The one professional area or two professional areas where there were quite a few connects was either as teachers or as pastors, church reverends and priests. But this, you know, it was a, a really shocking indictment of French colonialism that there was relatively few connects in managerial positions, in professional um, and technical positions. And what's happened over the last 30 years since the conflicts of the 1980s has been a significant investment in training and education, both at vocational level, um, sending people off to university, both in Australia and uh, in France, and uh, really building up a lot more indigenous people with university education, with skills, with professional skills and so on. There's certainly not that many in um, senior management positions, and there's still a reliance on expatriates coming in to assist in, in those areas. But you're now seeing mid-level people moving in and, you know, a lot of uh, interesting changes. One of the features of the Connie Ambo, uh, joint venture project um, between Glencore and the northern province was that they wanted a, a high lot of employment to be targeted at women. And so uh, when I last visited the plant, which was before the pandemic, when I travelled to the north of New Caledonia, I came in with a helicopter with people from the mining company, and as we landed, all of the firefighters standing around waiting for the helicopters to burst into flames when we landed uh, were all Kanak women. Um, so they trained a whole team of firefighters, all of whom were women. So women moving into non-traditional areas of employment, of science, of technology, uh, and so on, has been a feature of uh, of the strategy that big industrial projects like this create employment opportunities. And um, so there's been a lot of, particularly in the North, a lot of affirmative action even with basic jobs around construction, but a whole range of managerial and administrative jobs now, slowly a generation of who have been trained uh, um, since the Numea Accord, are moving into those positions. And, uh, look, it's going to take time. The Kinect, um, Indigenous Kanak population has really suffered in the education sector for decades and decades and decades in terms of uh, missed opportunities, um, and that's only slowly. It's going to take generations before that's uh, That's sorted out, and that's why the independence movement keeps struggling still for uh, um, sovereign independence. They want to run the education system to tailor it to local conditions and to draw on the incredible skills and capacity of of young Kanak.
0: Finally, Nick, the preparations for the presidential election.
7: Yeah. As I mentioned, the the government of New Caledonia is a multi-party government. It's it's structured so any... uh, Political group or political party that uh, gets six seats in the Congress. So that's um, uh, a 54 member Congress. If you can get six seats, you uh, can form a parliamentary group and you can gain representation in the multi-party government. So going back since 1999, when this system began, uh, you've got a, a government of 11 people that includes both supporters and opponents of independence. And this was designed to try and get people working together after the violent clashes of the 80s and 90s um, between uh, the different political tendencies in the country. Basically, the, the change of government in February, the collapse of the government led by President Thierry Santa, brought in six pro-independence members, three aligned with the largest pro-independence party, Union Caledonian, and three from the UNI group, which is uh, the party of Kanak Liberation and other smaller parties aligned to them. That the problem is that um, although they've got six out of 11 seats, there's still no agreement as to which of those two groups, Union Caledonienne or UNI, should um, hold the presidency. My sense is that it's likely that Louis Mapu from UNI uh, is the head of the parliamentary group in the Congress for this uh, group. He's a member of the Palika Party, the Party of Canuck Liberation, a long-time independence activist in the southern province is probably going to to win if the younger generation have their way. You see, because the largest party feel it's their go, but um, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes discussion about who will take over the presidency. That's really crucial because the FLNKS has called for the third referendum on self-determination to go ahead. Just in the last uh, two weeks, there's been a lot of discussion, and the Congress has agreed. Um, A third of the members of Congress have called for uh, another referendum. They had one in 2018, one in 2020. The independence movement wants another vote uh, next year in 2022. The loyalists, the so-called loyalists, people opposed to independence, think it should happen later this year. But there's going to be a big meeting in Paris at the end of May, where people from all sides of politics sit down with the French state to talk through what happens next. Um, So, we're likely to see in the next couple of weeks the election of a pro-independence president. The first time in 40 years there's been a pro-independence leader of New Caledonia and then uh, the new government will go into negotiations with France um, in uh, late May early June Um, and that's really going to set the the pathway uh, to a really crucial time you know at a time where Australia has chosen sides with France, you know we're buying French submarines, we're lining up with President Macron's visit of a Indo-Pacific Axis linking Australia, France and India. The Canucks obviously say, well, hang on, we want to have a say in that. And uh, if, as is likely, they, they move to another referendum in, uh, within a year, there may be a big surprise for people who you know, think that New Caledonia is French.
0: We'll look forward to that, Nick. Thanks very much.
7: Thanks as always, Jan, and uh, look forward to speaking again.
0: Journalist and researcher, Nick McClellan. If you want to hear us slam the atomic industry, then tune into the radioactive show on 3CR, 10am Saturdays.
3: Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes fears. And all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kofiyas to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours. Your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufias.org.au. That's K U F I Y A S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Like everyone, people who are LGBTIQ+, can experience suicidal thoughts. Living Works deliver workshops that give you the knowledge to
4: help others in the LGBTIQ+, community. Thanks to Northwestern Melbourne
1: Primary Health Network, from now until the end of May, Living Works is offering workshops for the LGBTIQ+, community completely for free. Visit livingworks.com.au
7: to learn how you can help save a life. Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network is a 3CR supporter.
0: Was there a coup attempt in Jordan in recent weeks? Has a former crown prince been silenced? How many have been arrested and who are they? And what are the implications of the unrest for the wider Middle East? For some answers to these questions, I spoke with Dr Tim Anderson and asked him first for a a potted history of Jordan since independence in
4: 1946. Go back a little bit. When the Ottoman Empire got dismantled during the end of the First World War and Britain and France carved it up between them, right, the U.S. didn't really have the weight in things to be able to carve up a slice of the Middle East for itself. So basically Britain took Iraq, Jordan, Palestine, and France took Syria, Lebanon. And if you watched Lawrence of Raider, you would have seen that the King Faisal, who became the, the Saudi king, were, had, had the ambitions to sort of control the whole the whole region after collaborating with the British, but the, that didn't work out basically because there were different things going on in different areas. The Syrians wanted independence, for example, but there was a squabble basically between some of the, um, the monarchies that the British wanted to back in the region. They set up one in Iraq that was overthrown in a in a revolution. The Hashemite Kingdom, which is in Jordan now, was originally the sheriffs that were in control of Mecca and Medina in what's now Saudi Arabia. But the, the current Saudi family defeated them and pushed them back, basically. So what you have is, um, and this includes some of the Gulf, the Persian Gulf monarchies, you know, Qatar and, and the others, the UAE and so on. Those remnants of the old sort of Arab feudal system that tried to reassert themselves after the Ottoman Empire were fragmented, and there's been squabbling and power play between all of them. So what you've got in Jordan is this Hashemite monarchy with a population of about 10 million, which includes quite a lot of the Palestinians who were pushed out with the Israel into Lebanon and Syria and Jordan, and that monarchy now is the one that's under threat because of changes in the region.
0: Was there a big battle to get independence from Britain?
4: Not really in the case of um, Jordan, because as I said, there were these deals with collaborating monarchies in the region, basically, um, that back in the 20s, you know, there was this firm establishment of the Saudis, for example, as being unhesitatingly loyal, as Churchill put it, to Britain, you know, so there was, in those sort of circumstances, like there was no struggle in Australia to get independence, it was... A process that happened in, after the Second World War. So, but the big struggle was in Syria, where the, the tribes, different groups, joined together against the French there, basically, while the French carved up Lebanon. So there wasn't a struggle in Jordan or Saudi Arabia or, you know, or in Iraq where, where a monarchy was installed there. Basically, the main struggle was in Syria, and that's interesting because it sort of reflects what's happening today too. Basically, that Syria has remained independent at a a great cost, but um, a lot of the collaborationist sort of regimes um, gained an independence, which was more or less blessed by the former colonial masters.
0: Well, two years into independence, and we have 1948, the creation of the State of Israel. Where did Jordan stand on that? Mm.
4: Jordan, with the other collaborationists, Uh, let's say regimes, Arab regimes, had a nominal sort of opposition to the creation of Israel. And and until fairly recently, like the normalization processes that were accelerated under Trump only a year or so ago, all of the Arab states were nominally opposed to Israel, but only some of them were actively engaged in resistance of some form. So basically, Jordan played this sort of pseudo-neutral role at times, cracking down on Palestinian resistance groups, for example, at times, including, you know, in recent years, collaborating with Israel. The the secret police of Jordan collaborate with Israel to control the Palestinian resistance, try and prevent them getting weapons and so on like that. So that's sort of been the history there. And it's only just changing recently with this so-called normalization process where you've got Kuwait and the UAE being effectively blackmailed by Trump to come out into the open and declare open support for Israel. Now, even Saudi Arabia, which is the closest of all the collaborationist monarchies there, hasn't done that yet. But everyone knows that Saudi Arabia is collaborating with Israel. But because there's this open collaboration now with Israel on the part of a couple of those regimes, the UAE and Bahrain, uh, it's uh, unsettling the, the power balance in the region. Basically, Israel is trying to get its hooks into as many of those collaborationist um, Arab regimes as it can to try and consolidate its position.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the West Bank and East Jerusalem, or Jerusalem, which was under control of Jordan, Mm. and how they lost that?
4: They have never really practically controlled it, but they've got a nominal status, for example, as a custodian, only because Israel recognises it, because in practical terms, in military terms Israel controls the entirety of Palestine has since since 67 since the war in 67 the two big waves of refugees that went up into the region into Lebanon to Syria and Jordan were after 48 and after 67 basically but Jordan or let's say the king of Jordan has been sort of granted this nominal role of being custodian of the Al-Aqsa the mosque in, in, uh, in Jerusalem for example but practically speaking, Israel controls it all. So whatever whatever status they provide is something that's um, really only granted by Israel, which has been the military occupying power in the West Bank, basically, because you have what, what the Palestinians call 48 Palestine, which is the original slice of Palestine that was carved out for the Zionist state, by the Zionist state, unilaterally, effectively, because the UN Committee back in the late 40s recommended two states, and that's Never had it happened. Of course, the the myth's been out there, but it's never happened, and there's never been any intention on part of the Israeli rulers to do that. It's really just been a question of to what extent they're going to keep expanding, and and the debate between them was how much of the West Bank, for example, they wanted to annex, whether it was 40 or 50% or all of it. But in practical terms, in military terms, they control all of it, but there's this guerrilla war going on there, of course. And if you want to enter, for example, Palestine or the West Bank from the Jordan side, you cross over a bridge there and you've got Israeli authorities doing the whole thing and then you get a little bit further inside and there's a Palestinian authority with some sort of nominal recognition of people coming in there. But practically speaking, the Palestinian Authority is like a local council, a little slightly glorified local council. It collects the garbage, it does the traffic control. There's a certain amount of autonomous policing within some of the the big cities in, in in the West Bank but Israel is effectively the controller right up to including the, the border with Jordan on the river.
0: What influence has the large population of Palestinians in Jordan had on the country?
4: Like I said it's one of the three, uh, four I suppose if you include Egypt But but in practical terms a lot of the refugees from Palestine the people have been driven out and still let's remember they're still being driven out there are Palestinians still being exiled because they are not recognized as citizens of Israel I mean there's a there's a small number of Palestinians that are recognized as citizens of what the Palestinians call 1948 Palestine the original sort of Israeli borders but the Israelis don't recognize any citizenship of Palestinians for example in Gaza or in on the West Bank basically so they recognize them as, res- as having some form of residence, and they give them different ID documents, you know, depending on their status. There's a whole hierarchy of different status. So why I'm saying that is because you have still people who are exiled, kicked out, their homes are demolished, they're expelled from the West Bank, they stateless, being treated as stateless people. You know, the population of historic Palestine is about half and half Jewish, and Arab-Palestinian now. It's about split down the middle. And only a small number of those Palestinians have a citizenship status within so-called Israel, basically. So there's a flux. And um, the difference is that there is a sort of a a normalized sort of border with Jordan and the West Bank, um, Palestine controlled by Israel, whereas the border with Syria and Lebanon is completely militarized and more or less impermeable, you know, there's no normal traffic going on there, basically. There's constant flux of um, Palestinian families, different generations that have have been in Jordan and with varying degrees of uh, whether they've got any sort of, um, um, I was going to say rights, but that's not the right word, whether they can actually visit or not is... um, up to the discretion of the Israelis in many respects, you know, because, as I said, there's this constant collaboration between the the secret police, the Mukhabarat of Jordan, and, and the Israeli internal intelligence there. So Palestinian people, you know, have played a role in, in Jordan's social and political life, but it's a monarchy. Um, it's not any sort of democracy, really, but it's got a, a very soft in the West because it's one of those collaborationist states. They can do anything they like and not have these huge propaganda wars against them, even when they're the Saudis, you know, slaughtering people and chopping off their heads in public and whatever. Jordan is in that camp there. The difference in recent times is that Jordan has played less of a role in collaborating with the U.S. and Israel in the recent plans than say, the UAE or the Saudis. And that's why what's being written about the recent coup attempt there is putting the blame at, on the feet of the uh, the UAE and the Saudis, basically, um, in association with Israel, because they they have their own ambitions. For example, the Saudis who managed to push the Hashemites out and become custodians of the the holy Muslim cities of Mecca and Medina, they would probably like to also have the... Israeli recognition of being custodians of Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem too. There is this power play behind the scenes, and that's why, although the Saudis have been very quick to deny it, but the people that they arrested apparently didn't arrest the, the crown prince, but he's under some sort of, or the former crown prince, but he's under some sort of home detention basically. But the people that they did arrest are people who are within Jordan who are very close to the Saudis and in some cases the Emiratis
0: just explain a little bit more why Jordan hasn't cooperated with the US as much as maybe other countries have?
4: Well, it has, but it hasn't had as much to offer, basically. I mean, you've got US bases in Jordan. You know, you've got intelligence cooperation. There's there's a very close relationship. It's just that they haven't had so much to offer in terms of the recent, uh, you know, they weren't really enthusiastic about the plan put up by Trump's um, son-in-law, and you know the the way the money was going to be thrown around to try and um, you know do some new deal and so on. They weren't as happy about elements of that, basically. But it's it comes down to internal jealousies about the little little regimes, and um, it's reflected to some extent in the jealousies between the Gulf Council Cooperation States too. You know that the the Saudis were very jealous of Qatar having an independent sort of Muslim Brotherhood network in the region and having a more successful media network, Al Jazeera, than the Saudis. You know, a lot more people still read or listen to Al Jazeera than Al Arabiya, which is Al Arabiya is the Saudis' competition there. So there's always been this type of um, jealousy and shocking for influence. And Jordan didn't really get involved in the same sort of way as the Saudis and Emiratis in well, the war on Yemen, for example, or the war on Syria. They they provided the base for the U.S., but they weren't as aggressively involved in those operations against independent states like like the Ansarallah-led Yemen and and Syria, for example.
0: Well, you're saying it's an attempted coup. Where does it go from here?
4: Well, it it didn't even make the status of a coup, really. It's just that the, the Jordanian intelligence move in on the former crown prince and some of his advisers in advance. They heard about it in advance, so it didn't even get to the level of a coup, but clearly they were worried about something, and it's come out into the public, but it, there wasn't like a, a coup-like operation. It was a, It seemed like there may have been a, a coup-like operation, and, you know, the, the basis of that is that there's this guy who, who used to be the, the half-brother of the current king there, the current king, Abdullah, his half-brother was um, pushed out of the crown prince position, and so there was some sort of jealousy going, some sort of basis for trying to push out the current king, Abdullah, who they sometimes call the hobbit because he's very little, but he wears lots of medals on his his military uniform, (laughs) looks like he's a war hero. So he uh, seems to have consolidated his position, although complicated because his father, Hussein, the previous king, had... uh, four wives, and so children with, with several of those wives. There are some other people in the royal family, basically, who are implicated in this. So it may not be over yet, but it's not like we couldn't say a coup attempt actually happened. It was a preemptive strike on on what the what Jordanian intelligence think may have been a coup. When you consider the role, remember what the Saudi, the current, um, the, the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, the the Prince MBS, um, in Salman, who kidnapped Lebanese um, Prime Minister Hariri um, three and a half years ago, kidnapped him, held him there, forced him to publicly renounce his position because he was unhappy with the fact that resistance factions in Lebanon got the upper hand and Hezbollah was in government and they wanted to push you know, the, the main resistance to Israel out of government in Lebanon, but failed and blown up in his face. And um, there's probably fair reason to suspect that the U.S. itself might try and replace bin Salman in, in Saudi Arabia because he's made such a hash of such a lot of things. Of course, remember, he chopped up that journalist in Turkey, in the consulate, in the Saudi Saudi consulate or Saudi embassy. He kidnapped the, the head of government of uh, of Lebanon and then let him go, and somehow they let Hariri back into government, and then he left, and then he's come back again. So the moves by, by MBS, by the, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, have been so rash that it's not unlikely that he was plotting something with Yemen too because the way the Saudi royal family looks at these sorts of things, and you've got to think in terms of family dynasties here, is the less democracy of any of the states in the region in Saudi Arabia. They see them, the other little monarchies as more or less appendages to their own. For example, they, they see the Hashemites as as a family that they defeated and they took over Mecca and Medina and a large part of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. From Riyadh, from the capital of Saudi Arabia, they they don't believe that the Yemenis have any right to sort of run their own nation there. So it's logical that they see Jordan as a subordinate in some ways, like they saw Qatar as a subordinate. and Qatar was... Uh, they, they humiliated Qatar and uh, wanted Qatar to... Um, you know, what do they call it, take the knee before Saudi Arabia and so on. So, And and effectively they control Bahrain in the same sort of way. So that's the way Saudis look at the region. So there's, there's good reason to think that the Saudis in collaboration with Israel is not totally happy with how things are going in Jordan and they may want to have a regime change there. But it's a little tricky when you've got a hereditary monarchy and when things are relatively clear in terms of hereditary monarchies.
0: Well, keep Israel in the picture. Where do they stand now at this Mm. stage?
4: They're essential because because you have to understand what's going on in the Middle East, particularly in the last 20 years, before that too, is that all of the conflict revolves around the attempts by the U.S. to control the region, everything there. And Israel, created by the British, a, a colony, a Zionist colony created by the British, but handed over effectively to the North Americans in the fifties have become effectively a base for the U S to some extent for NATO, but really for the U S. And I think um, the current U S president has said this several times in the last few decades that if Israel didn't exist, the U S would create an Israel for its own purposes to have a, a staging post in that part of the world, basically. So, Israel is more or less a U.S. base, a U.S. protectorate there, basically. And the Saudis are number two in that scheme of things because they're very rich and they can fund all of the subversion that the U.S. wants to do there. What's going on in Israel? While there may be some tensions between Israel and the U.S., at the moment, you know, Israel is worried that the U.S. may do another deal with Iran and do some sort of soft withdrawal from the region generally, right, because they've been... Their wars have been failing in Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria and there's been constant sort of debate and some level of pressure about to what extent they're going to withdraw from Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria to reduce the the sort of hype that Trump got involved in for whatever reason with Iran. Israel is very worried about that because the end result may be that there's a stronger coalition of uh, Arab states and Iran despite the fact of the normalisation in some of the the smaller states um, to confront occupied palestine basically so israel which has got its own internal problems because remember the netanyahu coalition is on a knife edge netanyahu's party itself has a, a small amount of um, support so there's a certain, but nevertheless there's a i suppose there's a fair, fairly solid degree of coherence in the terms of maintaining the Israeli regime, a racist regime, an apartheid regime there, basically. But there's concern about the level to which the U.S. may disengage over this Iran stuff because Iran is the most important central independent independent state which is supporting resistance in a number of states there. So the Israeli role in relation to Jordan, it's absolutely fundamental, you know, because they have been engaged for quite a long time with the Emiratis and the Saudis, as I said, in the... In the war on Yemen, because they covet also controlling strategically the shipping into the Red Sea and so on. Um, They're deeply involved in Israel, as we in in, sorry in Syria and attacking Syria as we know. They've been attacking Iraqi militia on the basis that they're running back. So Israel is really a type of an octopus there, which is representing on the one hand its own interests as a colony, but on the other hand also the the pretensions to control the region that the U.S. has there. So managing those sort of tensions with the different regimes that come and go in the U.S., and that's all a little bit up in the air. At the same time, you've got on the other side, you've got, as I said, these ambitions and and squabbling jealousies between the, um, particularly the the Emirates and so on.
0: Looking at the future for Saudi Arabia in the area, oil... Is not going to be the most important mm. thing in the world for that much longer. Where will they get their power yeah. from if they lose that
4: well it's a good point they're going to be in deep trouble because unlike Iran, which has industrialized substantially and the whole question of nuclear energy there, which is you know it seems anomalous at first glance that a country with such a lot of oil like Iran has spent a lot of time in nuclear technology and nuclear energy but it's precisely because they've been, particularly over the last 40 years, in a heavy industrialization phase and diversifying away from that reliance. Whereas the Saudis haven't done that. The Saudis have very little domestic industry. You know, the industry that they have is controlled from outside It's branches of outside companies and so on. They've had a lot of money. They've chucked it around. It's a classic of what's sometimes called the oil curse. And a lot of their loyalties are only held in place by money too. So the loyalty of even their army to a fair degree, remember this is a family regime, it's not really any sort of nation in a sense that bigger countries like Turkey or Iran are nations, Saudi Arabia isn't a nation, that sort of way, they've got a, a fractious sort of population. So they'll, they're likely to face a lot of political upheaval when their money runs out, when they can stop buying mercenaries, for example. From all around the region and even, um, you know, North Africa to go into Syria and Iraq and and Yemen in particular, they've been sending large numbers of foreign mercenaries into into Yemen, buying young people who are, you know, being sent in as cannon fodder. Basically, so the Saudis will really be in trouble when, mm-hmm. as you say, you know, sooner rather than later. That um, although the reserves are said to last for due to last for perhaps another century, but nevertheless, there's there's a decline in in terms of the revenue that they have they've got some financial problems already and so it's very it's likely to be unstable and this to some extent i think um accounts for the the paranoia and the volatility in in the saudi regime too you know they know that the loyalties are not very staunch you know that they have they have to buy the loyalties constantly it's an uncertain future for saudi arabia there could well be I mean, the irony is, you know, 10 years ago when they at the Arab Spring, it didn't affect the least democratic of all the Arab states, the, the Persian Gulf monarchies. You know, there was one uprising in Bahrain, which was crushed with the help of the Saudis after a little while. But none of those um, least of all democratic states, um, the Emirates, Qatar, Kuwait, you know, the Saudis were, were touched precisely because they were protected by their big Western sponsors. But that can all change.
0: If only, Tim, we began with the maybe, possibly coup in Jordan, where does King Abdullah fit mm. now? How secure does he feel?
4: Obviously, he's been unnerved by this. The US has made the, the right noises because, you know, ostensibly on the surface, there's nothing, he's done nothing to offend them really. You know, he's hosted US training camps for terrorists to go into Syria the un agencies have come in and hosted refugees in in that northern part of jordan from time to time although there's been problems there he's had as harmonious a relationship as any little regime could have with israel because you know he's managed the um, as his father did the the flux and 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 all of the the storm of palestinian resistance and palestinian exiles and palestinian refugees and so on so in a sense He's done the right thing by his masters in Washington, but he's ended up not a big player in the local power place, and that's the vulnerability there. You know, the Saudis are ambitious. There are people, other people within Jordan that want to be able to play that sort of game. It may be that there's some within the military, within the intelligence, who are part of this too. So because things are changing, you know, this is the problem of Israel in the region, isn't it, that Israel is this constant... As they say, cancer—it's constantly throwing up these dramas, which impact not just on the Palestinian people, but on Lebanon, on Syria, on, on Jordan, on Iraq, Iran, even basically. So across the region, in Yemen, the Israelis have their own agents now on Socotra Island of Yemen. You know, so they're, they're involved in that too. And the normalisation process has led them to putting shipping in the in the Persian Gulf. Now they've been, um, according to U.S. media sources, they've attacked over a dozen Iranian ships now, tankers and cargo ships, because, um, you know, Iran is supporting Lebanon and Syria, for example, and just recently got some oil through to Syria after the Suez Canal was blocked. So Jordan is in a volatile part of the world, and even though they've done the conservative things in terms of supporting their, their U.S. backers, but they're surrounded by other jealous Sharks in the region, and so it's we can't say with certainty that there's going to be the sort of stability that Western powers have looked for in Jordan.
0: So what's your back.
4: When you're in a little monarchy, you know you don't have you know the backing of a nation. People don't feel that it's any sort of representative system that, that supports them. You know why do you owe loyalty to a monarchy? You know is it just because someone was born into a family? This is a world where monarchies are becoming increasingly obsolete, isn't it? You would think so, except looking at the Australian media in the last few days. Maybe not. Maybe this is really a much stronger part of our our system than we thought it was. You know, I've I've been shocked to see how all of the Australian media has been so full of this Prince Philip stuff. So maybe there is some sort of glue there that the elites and the corporate media really are keen to keep going.
0: And I've been speaking with Dr. Tim Henderson.